This program is sponsored by Wicked Chronic in Natick, Massachusetts. Located in 185 Worcester Street, right on Route 9, they can be reached at 508-545-8105 or at wickedchronicvendorcommerce.com. Wicked Chronic is a boutique-style retail shop that focuses on selling counterculture products such as Wiccan cannabis cultures coming together in a unique setting. You need something for that special spell? Go on down to Wicked Chronic in Natick, Massachusetts and speak to Beverly. Tell them Dr. Chris sent you. Check them out today. television set that channels spirits from beyond. Roger! I'll see you rot. Spirits that return to seek revenge upon the living. We'll see you get what you deserve. Grace. <laughs> it's a haunting series of unexplainable deaths. And there's no way to pull the plug. Dad! On an all-new episode of Friday the 13th, the series. And you're listening to the Dead TV Podcast, podcast dedicated to all the canceled TV series and science fiction, fantasy, and horror genre. And Merry Christmas, everybody. I am your host, Dr. Chris. And I'm Mr. Seneca. Tonight, we are covering two episodes which are on the DVD or kind of out of order or on the IMDb or in the correct order, unless someone changed the IMDb information. Uh, it's kind of weird. It's the second time I think this has happened on this box set, I believe, right? Yeah, it happened once before. I think it was in season two. Right, so the episodes we're talking about tonight are Spirit of Television and Jack in the Box, and we're going to do Spirit of Television first, because I just actually played the promo for that. Okay. Uh, Originally aired April 30th, 1990, a dying psychic uses the powers of a cursed TV set to push back the hour of her own death. Did this episode remind you of anything in particular? Doesn't this remind you of anything, Ray? This, I think, a line from Ghost. No, is that a line from Ghostbusters? Yeah, no. Oh, I screwed that up. It was supposed to be a line. Never mind. Okay, go on. <laughs> I'm tired. <laughs> All right. Uh, this episode really revolves around uh, this, uh, you know, uh, psychic Ilsa. Uh, Ilsa, she is kind of, I, I don't know, suffering from some sort of disease where it, you know, kind of looks a little like leprosy pieces of her body are falling off uh it's kind of gross and disgusting and she has to convince someone to do a seance have them see the spirit in the tv which no one else can see and then uh the spirits then come after the person through the television sets and kill them and then she gets an extra 10 days of life 10 days Jeez, how many people has she been killing since she got this set from Uncle Lewis three years ago? Seriously, seriously, like only giving ten days. That's... Is she the original purchaser from Uncle Lewis? Well, the original uh, story of the TV was that it was donated by Uncle Lewis to a convalescent home, uh, perhaps because he knew that the temptation for having additional life would be very 
well used in a in a place of death. So she got it. She's been using it uh, and is now this big hot shot psychic. And yet no one really puts two and two together that the people that she sees, uh, a lot of them end up dead. Well, we already know the cops in this town are pretty dumb anyway, so... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the episode is directed by Jorge Montesi. Interesting name. Who still uh, was working up until 2007, but worked on shows like Andromeda and The Outer Limits and Total Recall. By the way, speaking of The Outer Limits, because that's like an anthology show, um, did you see the preview for... Oh, he worked on Captain Power, which we've talked about before. Uh, did you see the preview or the little teaser for uh, Jordan Peele's The Twilight Zone? Oh, no, I haven't. I didn't know that came out yet. No, 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 no just a teaser. The yeah, teaser. I know, okay. I know. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm so excited for it, but I did not know that the teaser was out. Yeah. I will do that and see it as soon as this production is over. That 30 seconds, uh, and uh, it starts with Rod Sterling, and then and then the words transition into Jordan Peele doing the, uh, you know, the, the narration. Oh, my God, yes! Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Jordan Peele uh, will be hosting The Twilight Zone. I love it. So, love it, love it. Love it. Yeah, hopefully it will last more this season, because the last two attempts at redoing The Twilight Zone, once in the 80s and once in the 90s with Forrest Whitaker, got canceled after a season. It is a kind of a cursed series. Yeah. This episode also stars Marge Doucet, who plays our villainess. Uh, a lot of people might know her from being on General... Uh, sorry, I almost said General Hospital. But uh, All My Children in Guiding Light, which are uh, soap operas, as well as Santa Barbara, another soap opera, and uh, a bunch of other shows that I never watched because I'm not it's, a watcher of soap operas. Yeah, me neither. I don't even know soap. Do, are soap operas even still on anymore? Yeah, they are. Wow. They kind of rival reality TV and talk shows. What's really funny is that a lot of the actors uh, in this episode have been on Captain Power, which was the, sh- the a show we've talked about a couple of times. Uh, just having you know other people from Friday the Thirteenth having been on it. It was a t- toy line 80 show where you pointed a gun at the screen and you shot you know an invisible laser out or whatever and the tv would shoot back at you kind of like a reverse back and forth of like duck hunt using that oh, same type I- of technology that flash bang you know from the pulling of the trigger by the way the yeah. guns looked like spaceships so you weren't actually pointing what looked like a plastic toy gun at the screen it was a spaceship tv series so the gun was looked like a spaceship you could put action figures into well, that's cool yeah captain yeah. power and the soldiers of the future so uh, pretty good, uh, pretty good and show. The soldiers of the future. Yeah. Uh, episode also has Belinda Metz, who was in Eight Below, Traffic, Dear Mr. Gacy, Goosebumps, and several other TV series as well. The episode opens with, whoops, wrong notes. Here we go. The episode opens up with what I believe, I mean, with like the the imaging on the TV reminds me of this guy. Let's see if I can play a clip from him. This is. Max Hedrum, and what you're about to witness is one of the most sinister-sounding intros to a trailer to one of the greatest epics ever produced in the history of television. There's more, because you are going to see it as well. Yes, it. Yes, it. Yes, namely, the Max Hedrum story. Max Hedrum. That's cool, yes. I I did get reminded about that, too. <laughs> That's exactly what I felt. Even though Max Headroom is not... I mean, technically, in some way, Max Headroom is a spirit living in a TV because he's a guy... As, if I remember the origin of Max Headroom... <coughs> <laughs> he has a motorcycle, he's a guy in a motorcycle accident and they transfer his consciousness into like this computer program on the TV in the future. Right? And, and the spirits are like, you know, spirits in the TV. Yeah, 
I, I suppose so. He's like a <laughs> AI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this was like, man, Max Headroom was big in the 80s. And of course, oh, it totally was. And this show was shot in the 80s, even though this is now in the uh, early 1990. Yeah, yeah. This is, uh, uh, you can't get any more 80s than Max. All right. Uh, so we open the episode with uh, this band actually going to Ilsa von Zant uh, to get a, a kind of a one year since one of their bandmates died and they want to contact a spirit. Actually, the, the female lead singer wants to contact a spirit because she feels guilty that she worked him until he overdosed on drugs. The band, um, uh, sorry. Bands that want to get involved with the occult, the supernatural, and mediums, and stuff like that, or whatever, that is nothing new. No, no. Yeah, there's uh, interest in psychics across the board, but usually you'll see them from like celebrities or musicians or whatnot. Um, and in su- like in the 80s, there was a lot of psychics that had actually had a very big boom in interest and even Ronald Reagan's wife uh she had a psychic that she would go to all the time Ronald Reagan Ronald Reagan that's my Ronald Reagan impression <laughs> win one for the gipper <laughs> Nancy never lets me do anything I want to do which is that's a reference to an episode of Will Smith where they string up a bunch of Christmas tree lights in their neighborhood or whatever Ronald Reagan stops by to give them some compliments right after <clears throat> Donald Trump <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> Great episode of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. So, in the seance, uh, the lead singer, Jessica... Uh, Jessica or Jennifer? Uh, I don't, I don't have no. Jessica. Uh, she sees the spirit in the TV, but her bandmates don't. And at first I was thinking that it's just because she's the one that is really feeling guilty. They're just kind of like, whatever, we don't really want to do this. Um, but it seems that this is how the object works, is that it only shows its image to one person in the seance. And Jack actually finds that a little, a little strange, because most seances, it, it appears to everyone. But that's a little later in the episode. I don't believe in stuff like that, unfortunately. Um, I mean, I've, I understand that there's you know, the ability to contact the spirit world and things like that. But these people sometimes, like in this episode, I mean, of course she can do it because it's, it's fiction and it's a cursed object and all that, but she's pretty much a charlatan. Yeah. I mean, yeah. she's she's trying to take advantage of people who are trying to contact their loved ones. Yeah, she was, uh, as Jack mentions, a mediocre psychic, and uh, she got this cursed object, and then she started gaining popularity and all that. Right. And she's got a little little boy toy character here. A little William. bit. William. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, all through the episode, like William is doting on her and and says that he you know cares for her and all of that, and she just you know treats him as a boy toy and you know that's kind of what he is. Kinda um, cool though. The. Uh, let's see. Uh, Mickey has a friend. Uh, fashion designer that actually gets killed in this episode. Yet another reason why you do not become friends with the Curious Goods crew. Right. Don't ever. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you ever. Because you're going to die. Um, yeah. I mean, we don't have any more episodes to really kind of make that point very clear, but uh, it's like um, 
Nobody lives it's except one for of the themes of, of the show. Nobody lives except for Rashid. Maybe we can ask somebody coming up very soon if we were planning a season when uh, if there was a season four. Uh, would would uh, you know what living characters would return? Like Rashid, which we hadn't seen at all this season. I know, but I love Rashid. He's our our favorite off screen, uh, a friend to Jack. Uh, yeah, kinda. Just uh, I like him. I mean, yeah, no, no, I, I like him too. What I'm saying though is that he um he just I just I just wondered if he just couldn't get the actor back. Ah, oh yeah, yeah. In this episode, Jack actually brings another one of his friends, uh, Robert Jandini, and he is a skeptic. So he's there to prove that the psychic is, you know, crap. bullshit. Yep. Yep. And like clockwork, <laughs> he also dies in this episode. Uh, uh, the story, by the way, Jack tells at the end is a version of the appointment in Samara. It has also been used in the episode of Supernatural with the same title in the Sixth Thatcher's episode of Sherlock. Ah, and that's the story of um, meeting death in Baghdad? Yes, 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 yes. That's a good story. Which is funny, uh, I think that's the episode of the Sixth Thatcher's. Is that the, the wedding episode of Sherlock? I do not know. Did you ever watch Sherlock? No, I did not. Oh my god, it's so good. And the only reason season five has been postponed is because uh, Benedict Cumberbatch has got to... Uh, begin work on uh, Doctor Strange 2. Ah, he's so good in that role. Yeah. Um, the, I, I'm, hope, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm hoping for good things next year with the Infinity War Part 2. So. They gotta reverse what they did, that's for sure. Well, it's gonna happen, yeah. The new trailer came out, the end game, so. So, uh, a little bit about this Chris TV. A black and white TV from the 1950s, that's all the details that were given on it, no make or model. The major producers at the time were RCA, General Electric, and Dumont. Uh-huh. So perhaps that this TV uh, back in the day would it would have cost about 129 to uh, almost 1300 dollars if you were to buy the TV new in the 1950s. Today, black and white TVs made after 1950 are worth nothing, like nearly nothing. But I could find a kind of version of this particular style of TV, not exact, but within the same, you know, general look to it, uh, on eBay for anywhere from 200 to 250 depending on if you get the TV cabinet along with it. You know, shipping not included, of course. The most valuable TVs from the 1950s uh, that are black and white would be the Philco Predictas and the Dumont Royal Sovereigns. And both of those are actually worth several hundred dollars. So if you have one of those in a back garage, you know, save it, and uh, you can sell that for a few hundred. Oh. Otherwise, you could just, they're just waste of space. There was an episode of Supernatural that had, like, a cursed TV. Um, the t- we find out the TV wasn't cursed as much as there was a guy, there was a ghost of a child, and he was attached to a pocket knife that... Uh, I think the guy involved with his death slipped it into the back of the TV uh, that Sam that Sam and Dean had gotten for free from the pawn store because the, the guy was like, anything you want in the store, take it. It's on the house, guys, because you, you know you saved me from the giant stuffed Tyrannosaurus Rex. And uh, the cursed TV, um, possessed by this ghost of this kid, sucks them into an episode of Scooby-Doo, and that's the Scooby-Natural episode. <laughs> Man, the show. Yeah. 
So they uh, they uh, they find that out from the ghost of the kid or whatever, and they agree that you know if the kid lets him free, and they will uh, they will do everything to make sure that that guy does not get away with you know what he did to him. So it goes from like it's really like oh they're gonna take up the Scooby Doo to like oh there's a dead child and this bastard's getting away with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it's it's still a great episode because at the very end when the guy's just like I would have gotten away with it too and he's Dean's like no 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 he just says I would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for you boys and Dean's like he did it. he said the line he said the line <laughs> and then he's like Scooby Dooby Doo Dean Sam and. Castle looking at him like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, your opinion, Dr. Chris, the spirits that are actually coming into the TV, do you think they're actually the spirits of the people summoned, or do you think it's actually demons in disguise? Uh, I think it's the cursed objects just making up its own thing. I think it's just one of those MacGuffins that yeah. kinda, it's going to make up its own like rules. It just doesn't seem like the curse should be able to pull spirits from the spirit world, but then what? So it's like summoning demons from hell to masquerade as these people's long-lost loved ones? I mean, that is something that a devil would do. Yeah, I just also find it hilarious the way people are getting killed, like the first woman gets killed with that TV or whatever. Her body yeah, just so limply smashes TV. into it. It's just like, woo, that was bad. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and, and then his friend Robert Gendini just carries the TV and falls out the window. Right. Yeah, lots of TV deaths because of the, this cursed object. In this episode, we've got five total deaths. Five. And, uh, well, I don't have a TV. Well, I have a TV, but I don't have a TV that old. I used to have a black and white TV, although it was from the 1960s, so it had more of a pop type of... Um, shape to it. Uh -huh. It was one of those where you could hold on to the handle on the top and it had the bunny ears and whatnot. It was it was very cool. It was very retro. I liked keeping it around, but then it was just taking up space after a while. So yeah. I got rid of it. The one thing I miss about my TV like that is I had a nice top flat top surface before I got the you know, before I got a plasma which is like skinny as hell. And you could put mm -hmm. stuff like on top of it. So I put all my gaming systems on top of it. <laughs> because the box is so strong or whatever. But after a while I wanted a plasma so We only have one tube color TV here left at the house. Otherwise, it's it's all flat screens. Alright. We are waiting on somebody to call us. So we're going to play the preview for the next episode, which is Jack in the Box, here on the Dead TV Podcast Radio Horror Show. They killed her father. I wish the man who murdered my dad would die. That won't bring him back. How do you know? Now, a cursed Jack in the Box becomes her instrument for the ultimate revenge. You should be the dead one. And with each victim, she is granted the power to summon the ghost of her father. She's using the box so they can spend more time together. On an all-new Friday the 13th, the series. Next week, a deadly toy can be murdered. And we're back with the Dead TV Podcast with the next episode of the Friday the 13th series, Jack in the Box. But not so much talking about Jack in the Box just yet as we're going to be discussing the end of Friday the 13th, the series. And the next episode of the Dead TV Podcast will be our final recording for Friday the 13th as we will be in the last two episodes of the entire series. And on the show with us to talk about the ending of Friday the 13th, the series is our longtime guest of the show, Jim Henshaw. Thank you for calling back onto the show with us, Jim. No problem. Love to be here. Jim, why did Friday the 13th end? 
<laughs> I mean, this could have got you, you, you. An antique store never runs out of stuff that you could have cursed. <laughs> <clears throat> Unfortunately, uh, we didn't run out of religious zealots who thought we were a problem. Oh. Yeah, there was a, a guy by the name of Reverend Donald Wildman, who was an evangelical preacher who felt we were uh, dabbling in the black arts and uh, started a mail-in campaign to our various sponsors. And Oh, wow. We fought it for about a year, and then it just became too problematic. And we actually finished the third season, I think it was two episodes shy of the full order, uh, because Paramount just decided, you know what, let's pull the plug and uh, get this off our back. And we've had a good run. We got enough episodes for syndication, and let's move on. You didn't need a hundred episodes for syndication. No, uh, whatever we had was enough, uh, and I don't remember the exact total uh, because uh, we actually filmed the prophecy. The two episodes were part of episode of season two, but yeah. they didn't air till season three. So That's, we may have done some extras. We said that exactly. And when we had John on the show, John De La May, he, he yeah. wasn't entirely sure about that or he couldn't remember, but we knew we knew that that felt like a season two finale and the beginning of Johnny's run was felt like a season two beginning. You know what I mean? Yes. So we we, we, yeah. we predicted that, and we knew it. Though, so thank you for confirming that. <laughs> now you need we to confirm. We did it very well because we didn't. We meant it the way that that you thought it should have been. Right. Okay. Now you need to confirm or deny another topic that we happened to bring up on last week's show because you wrote the episode with Frank Mancuso Jr. And we've actually had uh, listeners asking about this. What was going on in your life at the time? The right, my wife as a dog, like the way it was. <laughs> you, I mean, were you going through a divorce? Were you, there's a rough patch? I mean, was there, was there a, a lot fight? of drugs involved? Because, let's face it, a dog, the definition yeah. of a female dog is a bitch. And... Well, <laughs> um, where's the subtext then? Okay, that's what we're basically getting at. Without naming names, what was really going on was there was somebody on the show who was going through a miserable divorce. Oh, no. And uh, I had been through one. Oh. I had been through my miserable second one yet. But I had been through a divorce, and so I was kind of, like, trying to help. At the same time, uh, my dog died. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And so uh, John Anderson, who was the executive producer, was a big fan of my dog because the dog used to come visit studio and hang out in the production office and he was she was a he was a great old english sheepdog so you know big fuzzy creature and john was i think well I, i'm not going to say he was more upset than i was at losing the dog but you know um we started talking one night and it was like there was all this agita going on with you know people being upset about divorces and dog dying and everything and there was a movie uh I think it was a Norwegian or Swedish film called My Life as a Dog that was out there. And it just became a play on words that then combined uh, a dog that was dying with a marriage that was dying. And that's where it came from. Excellent answer. 
No, good, 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 good. Because we were really curious. It's like, God, someone must have been having a bad day. Because you watch, uh, you watch like shows like Sons of Anarchy, where Kurt Fuller works with his actual real life wife on that show. Oh yeah, and he puts her through the ringer on that show, down to being like murdered, raped, and so on and so forth. You're like, God, what was going on in their marriage at the time? <laughs> Oh, yeah, you won't take out the trash? Well, guess what? This week, you're going to get beaten in the face. (laughs) Hey, honey, I love you. Good luck in the makeup chair. (laughs) So, with the... Did you guys know about the Sci-Fi Channel starting up at this point in 1990? No. Okay. So you had no idea where syndication was going to land you. And then two years later, you guys are on the Sci-Fi Channel. Yeah, Paramount was still handling their own syndication. And, uh... I don't remember what their syndication department did after uh, both uh, Friday the 13th and War of the Worlds ended the same season. Right. Uh, but, but Star Trek uh, The Next Generation was still, like, was hot as hell right now, right? This was, like, the the big uh, three, yeah. third, fourth, fifth, fourth season or something, third <laughs> season? I, I don't remember exactly, but I know that uh, uh, Star it was Trek going was on. Yeah, Star yeah. Trek was hot. Yeah. Which is funny, considering we're on the uh, the cusp of a resurgence of Star Trek uh, right now, with Patrick Stewart returning to the role that he was on parallel with on the show, parallel to going on Friday the 13th. Mm-hmm. I know. Did you and, have... Uh, oh, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. No, sorry, go ahead. No, uh, you go ahead. Did Bye. you have plans, did you have notes, what was going to happen in season four if you got picked up? We did not really. Um, the Charnel Pit, which was the last episode that we shot, um, was actually not even thought of when we got our cancellation notice. And I had a conversation with Frank because we knew it was going to be the last one. And and we had a long conversation about what do we do here. And his advice to me was... Uh, we might as well be hung as a, for a sheep as a lamb, meaning uh, we weren't what everybody said we were. So let's just pull out the stops for one episode to show them what we could have done if we had wanted to. So that became the charnel pit. And But prior to that, we really didn't do any season planning until the season was over. I know between one and two... Uh, we we had everything fi- everything was finished and then we had we got all the uh, creative people together and and spent a weekend in Santa Barbara kind of banging stuff out for where do we want to go with this what's been working what hasn't been working <clears throat> at the end of the second season uh, Miles Dale and I uh, went down to Los Angeles where the Paramount executives were and basically spent I think about a week. Um, just kicking around ideas. We we had the stories for the entire season mapped out, uh, just in, you know, like uh, outline form or not even outline form, just paragraph form. So we knew what cursed objects we were using. We knew when we were going to have a, a Mickey episode or a Johnny episode. We knew uh, kind of what we wanted to try that we hadn't been able to do before. And and that's the way we approached it. So what we would have done at the end of season three was probably something very similar. That everybody would have just gone and gone to a beach and fallen on their face for a week or two. 
And then we would have gotten together and gone, okay, so what worked, what didn't work? And it it extended to the point of which directors are giving us the best stuff, and we'd talk to them about what do you guys want to do? What do you think would be a direction we haven't thought of? So we, we really just sort of beat the bushes for about a month or two and then started formatting where we, where we would go next. With there was like a couple episodes this season that uh, you didn't have anyone in the cast almost in the episode barely, and then there was an episode where there was no cursed object, which was actually one of my favorite episodes. It was a motorcycle, the fog kind of inspired episode. Why was that? Yeah. Uh, again, just trying stuff. Uh, the Midnight Riders was also an episode that I wrote. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, and it, it was just. Uh, uh, Tony Thatcher, who was the old man that played Jack's uh, father. Dead dad, yeah. In, yeah, he'd been, I think he was one of the first professional actors I ever worked with when when I was, back when I was starting out as an actor. And he was just really talented guy, and Chris knew him really well, and, and it was just like, we need to find something for him. And so that evolved out of that, and... You know the bat out of the hell, uh, bat out of hell album cover. You know was part of it, and I was at the time obsessed with with motorcycle gangs. Probably still still am, but um, really wanted to write a motorcycle gang episode. And I got to tell you, um, one of the best anecdotes in the whole series came out of that show. We were in the middle of nowhere, and uh, southern Ontario w- is rife with motorcycle gangs. Um, the two major ones were the Hells Angels and a group called Satan's Choice and the Paradise Riders, those kind of guys. Anyway, we're in a real rural setting in the middle of nowhere, and uh, George Buza, who was the, uh, the biggest of the, of the, uh, mid- uh, the uh, Dragon Riders, we sent him and three or four other guys over a hill, lit for like a mile on this country road at night, with a walkie-talkie and said, give us a call when you're ready, and we'll just do a thing with the bikes coming over the hill. <clears throat> and we kept radioing and radioing, and we couldn't get through, and we're thinking maybe his, mic, his mic's not on or, or whatever. And finally he radioed to us, and he said, "Just we're, we're here, just give us a minute. And we went, okay, and, and uh, then he gave us a heads up, and uh, we rolled cameras, and like 20 bikes came over the rise, and we were going, <laughs> we sent four guys. What, what had happened was they had pulled up at a little country intersection in the middle of nowhere. Nobody knew, would have been able to see the crew or know we were there, and a whole bunch of bikers pulled up like, what are you guys doing on our turf? <laughs> oh. So these four actors had to go, uh, we're making a movie, and they're going, yeah, where's the camera? And they finally convinced them, and, and uh, with the back and forth on the, on the radio, and they said, okay, well, let's ride in with you. <laughs> so that's what happened. That's great. It was. It was fabulous. All right, now, and uh, I know mentioned in Elisa's book uh, comments about adding more maggots to the you know, to the decapitated biker and and yeah. lots of gory good stuff in there. It's a great episode. Yeah, we we actually had a maggot sub, uh, wrangler on set for a couple of episodes, and uh, I don't know. I mean, we, we had a lot of. Uh, there's so many stories that I don't think will ever come out about the show. We uh, 
early in episode or sorry season two I'm not sure what the title was but it uh, it was about uh, a psychiatrist running a a uh, an asylum where he was actually killing people with uh, with their whatever their phobias were and we needed uh, to put a stunt woman into a pit with a whole bunch of snakes and everything else so one Saturday we when the rest of the crew wasn't around, we brought in a, a minimum crew and about 10 guys who had bags of snakes. And uh, they were worried about how to how to tell somebody's King Cobra from somebody else's. And so they, they came up with this idea of taking little colored, um, like, stickers and putting them on the bottom, on the bellies of all the snakes. So the, the the green guy would have all the green bellied snakes, and the red guy would have all the the. the well, that's kind of red. smart. <laughs> yeah, it was a real bright idea. We thought until we realized that under the lights, um, all the stickers were going to come loose. Oh. So this this stunt woman ended up, you know, not only covered with snakes, but when we finally pulled her out of the pit, uh, covered with all kinds of stickers, and and I'll, as I drove away that night, they were like five or six guys standing in the parking lot, each holding three or four snakes going, well, mine's a little bigger than yours, so maybe this is mine. <laughs> oh. Yeah, that was the episode, and now the news. You know, yes. there's a... You know, there's an epi- there's a there's a woman who shows up in a lot of your episodes, by the way, an actress who's gone on to have, like, a huge career, um, Jill Hennessy. Uh, yes. God, Crossing yeah. Jordan, Jill Hennessy, Exit Wounds, I mean... Yeah. A lot of order. Big career in this woman. Yeah. And uh, did we ever use her? I think she has a twin sister. Uh, we may have used her as well. I don't know. I don't remember. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. I don't, I, I don't know. Uh, it, it's that kind of thing. Yeah, we had a lot of people who sort of arrived. Mm-hmm. But with, by the way, with working alongside Frank, which which was a big thing in the season three, uh, Frank mm-hmm. Mancuso Jr. did and and him having you know the creator of Friday the Thirteenth the series and obviously being heavily involved in the movie franchise. Did you guys ever talk about like doing a like a crossover or, or not? And I don't mean a crossover like you had to have watched the show, but like a mention of Crystal Lake or the masks <laughs> showing up or something to be like, yep, we exist. No, and and it was because Frank wanted to make sure there were two separate audiences and two separate franchises, and it was like. Whether, having not been there at the very beginning, I don't know whether uh, Friday's Curse, which was the original title of the series, right, uh, was a way to sort of suggest Friday the 13th, but get away from it. Um, but at some point, Friday the 13th was imposed on him. And so it was like, okay, well, we just have to make sure that people watching the movies know that the series is something different and people watching this the series know that it's not going to be like the movies and i think he did at least one uh sequel to friday the 13th the movies every year um but but those productions and everything even though we had directors that had done some of the movies um those were all completely separate we never knew where they were shooting what they were doing and uh but occasionally we get an act uh pardon me a, a director who uh had done a couple of films. Yeah, like Tom... Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, director part six, Jason Lives. Yes. Um, yeah. 
<clears throat> we uh, now in this episode, yeah, uh, we have a child actor uh, that's basically the main character of. I guess you'd call her the villain of the episode. Right. Was there any special uh, considerations with working with child actors on the show? In the episode yeah, Jack we, in the Box. Yeah, we did. Uh, we did three or four episodes with kids. Uh, one called The Playhouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, Friend to the End. Uh, so we were used to working with kids. Uh, there, it's a bit of a production. I don't want to say nightmare, but but there are a lot of production considerations because you can only use work them a certain number of hours a day. Um, you have to provide uh, teachers so that they can be tutored. Uh, and we we tried. I think in all three cases, they're more spookier stories than than real flat out horror. And uh, yeah, this one in Jack in the Box, like right in the beginning, you get this girl who uh, it's her birthday, and her parents are faking that they don't remember her, that it's her birthday, and sure. then she finds her father dead in the pool. And I'm just thinking, like, oh, my God, that's going to ruin someone's life. <laughs> Except that, you know, I mean, I'm not a great audience member for, for horror movies. Because uh, even though I know what goes on, I can still get scared. Mm-hmm. And and that's, you know, a great testament to the people making the movies. But it, it's also that kind of thing where the number of times I've sat watching something going okay, there's a crew back there, it's only a movie, you know, I mean, that kind of thing. When you're dealing with kids, it, there's also that excitement of being on a movie set. They love the, the stuff that's going on that's so different from their ordinary life where there's make-believe things happening. And, I mean, you know, in our case, you know, accidents in terms of, you know, blood gushing or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so the the kid would have gotten to know the actor that went into the pool. Uh, would also have gotten, you know, they were probably goofing around doing things as as they rehearsed or whatever. So they know it's make believe. They know it's not real. And uh, and the directors that we always had uh, were always really great about making sure with the kids that they were comfortable, that they understood it was all make believe. Nobody was really being hurt. Nobody was, you know. But everyone, they're little actors. Everyone and, was still alive. Yeah, and and uh, the girl that plays Megan in this episode, um, Marsha Moreau. Yep. Uh huh. Yeah, she was very good, uh, especially towards the end when she's actively, willingly wanting to kill people just to see her father's apparition. Right. Mm-hmm. And in this episode, we have the father's spirit basically convinced trying to convince Megan to not kill people because he is not supposed to be there. He's supposed to be passed on. Um, And the music box itself uh, plays, um, it's like the Drowning Sailors, Jack in the Box. Uh, Fred Molin actually has this at the moment, but it plays uh, What Will You Do With a Drunken Sailor? Is that a song that was added to the clips or was that actually inside the music box? I honestly can't remember if it was scripted. I don't know. Okay. Uh, yeah. I just, I just... It, likely, it likely came later. And, I mean, because it's a, a, a song that wouldn't have any copyright to it, it was probably part of the reason it was selected that way. Mm-hmm. That's all I, I, I don't really remember. 
The episode uh, the episode also has Laurie ha- Hallier, Hallier in it. Uh, yeah. And she was a big part in the original My Bloody Valentine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Laurie was a, a really good working actress. I think she did every series that I ever worked on at some point or another. She came in and guested. And uh, just a really good actress. Mr. Zeneca, do you... Um, how, um, the object, do you have one? Uh, I do not actually own a Jack in the Box. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have some additional information about Jack in the Boxes, uh, but um, we'll save that for another time. By the way, uh, speaking of Jack in the Boxes, and of course being Christmas time, what's the uh, what's the uh, what's the uh, toy and elf that scares Buddy? <laughs> oh, the Jack in the Box. He's like breaking it, and then he's like he's like hesitating, and then he's just you know the Jack in the Box pops up and scares him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Jack in the Box in French is actually Diable en Bot. Diable en Bot, which is a literal translation for Devil in the Box. Right. Yeah. And so you guys aren't sponsored by the burger chain or anything, so. No, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. no. They, they don't actually have Jack in the Boxes uh, as far as Pennsylvania. Yeah, they don't have them here out here either. They, they're, that's like a California thing. Yeah, I think so too. Which is yeah. a shame because God, do people talk about them like the greatest thing ever? Of course, they said the same I thing mean, about Chick Fil A, and now we have Chick Fil A's everywhere. They have a wide variety of menu items. <laughs> <laughs> like seriously, you'd go there, you can get a teriyaki bowl, or you can get a burger, or you can get a uh, you know a uh, an order of taquitos. Sometimes, like they have a wide menu, and I do wish that they were out here in Pennsylvania, because it's something I do miss, but I would wish more that In-N-Out Burger was out here more than Jack in the Box. Now I, want I, share your, I share your taste in burgers. <laughs> well, well, that's, uh, we, uh, we, um, that, that is, that's pretty much it for this episode of the, of the last, okay. the se- second to last two episodes of Friday the 13th, the series, and we got two more episodes to go on the next episode of the cool. Dead TV Podcast, and we want to thank Jim for coming back on the show with us to give us some inside thoughts on the ending of the show. Thank you so much, Jim. It's been great having you on for the, uh, for the time we've been covering this TV series. Well, thank you. It's been fun trying, trying to remember things <laughs> from... 30 years ago now on on the show because I'll I'll tell you one final story about Friday the 13th in terms of uh, its longevity. Uh, Back around 2006, which was, you know, 20 years after the series ended or 15 years after the series ended, I was moving into a new house and the cable guy arrived and he hooked up the cable and uh, what a lot of people think is that when you're um, when you do a series that you re- that every single part of it is as vivid as it is to the people watching it, but people forget that you're doing a show. You you prep it for a couple of weeks, you shoot it for a couple of weeks, you edit for a couple of weeks, and it moves on. And the television train just keeps towing you in into the next project. And when you leave one series, you move on to another. So this guy turned on the the satellite dish. And Friday the 13th was just on the the channel he was set on. And I went, wow, that's kind of a coincidence, and maybe it's a good omen for this new house. And uh, he left, and I started watching the episode and went, gosh, I, I don't really remember this the story. I'm going to watch and see how it goes. And at the 
as it got to the end, it it was like, wow, this was really good. I wonder who wrote it. And the credits came up, and I wrote it. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I know. Well, you, you realize, I mean, I le- after Friday the 13th, I, w- I worked on Top Cups for four years, did a whole bunch of pilots and a whole bunch of made-for-TV movies, and uh, didn't really get back into the genre until uh, Erie, Indiana, and, and Beastmasters. You're away from it for a long time, and it's just like, who was that guy again? What was that actor? You know, oh, right, I remember that scene, but you don't. It's really, really interesting. Wow, that is that is interesting. I know it's strange, but it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in the episode writer for this one, uh, Dennis Spoon, yeah. says that the idea came from a script that he wrote that was never produced for PBS about a dad who dies of cancer. And he just basically repurposed it for Friday the 13th, added the cursed object, and added revenge to it, and then boom, um... It was he des- describes it as a new way to explore emotions in the episode. It didn't have to be entirely about fear. Yeah, uh, Dennis is a really interesting writer. I think I don't know if he started with kids' books or he got into it at one point, but he'd done a lot of uh, children's kind of television, and he's a very innovative guy. And uh, I I think it was his agent who approached us, and I sort of went, God, doesn't he need a kid's writer? And then when he pitched the story, it was like, no, this is really cool. So we went with it. Hmm. Again, Jim, I hope you and your family have a very Merry Christmas coming up. We we will. And And a Happy New Year. And a Happy New Year. And we will definitely stay in touch. It has been an absolute pleasure uh, having you on the show while we cover Friday the 13th, the series. And it's been a real pleasure for me, too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Don't forget you can check us out on Facebook at the Dead TV Podcast, as well as our individual Twitters at Christy SAV and Elegantly Elegantly Kinky, and you can join us on Patreon at Dr. Chris's Radio of Horror on Patreon. And we will we will be back next week for the final two episodes of Friday the Thirteenth the series.